0: Good morning once again and welcome back here to the Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Today we have uh, what we hope will be a constant conversation on the this, on this show for the next few months, which is a round tables with our city council representatives. We are joined in studio now with two of our newly elected and one of our re-elected. Uh, Councilman Ryan Dorsey, hey. District 3, which is where Morgan State University sits. Good to see you, Ryan. Thank you. Councilman Zeke Cohen, District 1. Over on the east side, good to see you. Good to see you, Mark. East side, yes, east side. Mm-hmm. And Councilman Bill Henry from the north side, District 4. Good to see you. Always a pleasure, Mark. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. You can write to us here at talk at steinershow.org by email. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner. We have one already in. And Anaquinsia Ogbu, I will read your uh, tweets in just a moment. You can also uh, log on to our Facebook pages. But do call in at 410-319-8888. So at 3 p.m. today... The mayor, Mayor Pugh, will be giving her state of the state, state of the city address, excuse me. So I'm curious what you all think is, from a council perspective, your perspective, not just your district, but city. as you look at the city, what is the state of our city? What do you think the state of our city is? Not to, not to undercut the mayor nor take away any of her steam, but I'm just curious what you all think is the state of the city.
1: Wow, I, I'm, I'm having a hard time imagining what I could say right now. That wouldn't be taken as undercutting the mayor six hours before her uh, state of the city uh, address. But, I, I mean, I can say from my perspective, Baltimore um, has problems, and I don't think anyone would argue with that, but I am uh, I remain optimistic about our ability to
0: solve them. Zeke Cohen? Yeah,
2: you know, the challenges are real, but so are the opportunities in this moment. I think there's... Uh, this really interesting sort of political dynamic we're in right now where there's a real moment for citizen participation. Um, I feel like I've been on a protest tour over the last couple of weeks, uh, whether it's about ice snatching up people in my district, whether it's about the one hundred and thirty million dollars facing our school system. Uh, it feels like the citizenry in this town is woke in a way that um, I haven't seen. Uh, And and so I think that creates an opportunity, not just with a new mayor and eight new city council members, but with a moment where people can come together and articulate their values and really push, and it seems to be having an impact.
3: I mean, in terms of articulating values, we're coming up on the budget, and that, you Mm. know, I just look at that as a cold statement of values. Um, And... you know for a long time that has looked like we really value police and we really value a lot of other things a whole lot less and in terms of you know an engaged citizenry i think you know people are seeing like baltimore city can be its own champion and that you know this budget has to be a statement of our values and our priorities Because nobody else is prioritizing Baltimore City, and we can't rely on the federal government. We can't rely on the state government, and we can't and should not try to rely on philanthropy to solve our problems for us. Baltimore City needs to put itself first.
0: Well, I'm going to get into some of these things you've just spoken about. and I, 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 You know, last year on the city council, there was a bill that was put forth um, that would have given the city council a great deal more power in terms of determining the budget. Right, and that was passed by the city council, vetoed by uh, then mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake. Uh, but you, you, do you have plans to reintroduce, or does someone have plans to reintroduce well. that, that that particular proposal? And you may have a veto-proof majority. Maybe you might have a veto-proof majority. What would that mean?
1: So um, that was my charter amendment. That's I had what put I, in, I had, right. I had right. put in a a package of charter amendments back in, I think, 2012, like shortly after the beginning of the, the new term, I put in a package of charter amendments which were aimed at trying to tweak the balance of power between the mayor and the city council. I mean, everybody who has grade school or high school civics expects there to be checks and balances in government between the executive and the legislative branch. Um, but we don't really have in, in Baltimore's charter the level of checks that people – think we do. And uh, I put that in, and I was uh, disappointed that uh, council people voted against their own self-interest as a council um, in not overriding. I've not um, reintroduced that charter amendment yet because, frankly, I wanted to see how this year's budget process goes. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the mayor and the council being partners um, from both sides, and um, in an ideal world, I think that would be the best way to approach the budget. If it turns out that the budget does not reflect the council's priorities um, and there is no shifting of that during the process, then I suspect there would be an interest in reintroducing that charter amendment.
0: And uh, the, the people you two replaced, I think if I'm correct, voted against that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious where the two of you stand if that was to be introduced, Ryan?
3: Um, I, I mean, if I, I think that if it has to be introduced, I think Bill laid the groundwork well for it, that if it comes to, you know, if this budget process does not go particularly well and there's a need to introduce it, then I think there's going to be a need to support it.
2: Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting things being on council is um, – The citizens think you have enormous power to do things. Uh, And I think what this body, what this particular group is starting to realize is that we do have a lot of power. Um, If we organize, if we hold each other accountable to our principles, if we do things like actually fight for $15 minimum wage, uh, which we all, which at least everyone here campaigned on, um, that we actually do have the power to move the ball down the field. And I would just agree with my colleagues that I think right now we're all feeling each other out and seeing what this thing looks like. But it is very much on the table that um, you know we could begin to shift the structural power uh, toward the council.
3: We do have a council of Organizers in a way that we did not before. Community organizers. Yeah. And and people that are really thinking about the power that we have among ourselves to kind of collectively bargain.
2: Yeah. And and the power of community and that when we work together, um, you know, we – Councilman Dorsey and I are on the education committee and we've made a commitment to hold all of our hearings in schools. Um, And in places where parents and students and teachers actually are um, instead of just doing them in City Hall, because I think there's a recognition on this council that it can't just be about us. It has to be about our entire city, our community, and how we move together um, with each other in relationship, in partnership. Um, And I think that's what we're starting to see with our council.
0: Now, folks, I want you to join us here at 410-319-8888. We really want to hear your ideas and thoughts. What do you think about the state of our city? What do you think about the police department budget and overtime and where public safety money should go? The crisis in our public education uh, and the $130 million deficit, what would you like the city to do and how do you – envision that happening 410-319-8888 uh, we can talk about ice we're working on a story about that ourselves at this moment uh, with one of the people who was snatched by ice who was a community leader uh, we can talk about that 410 your thoughts on all that we really want to get your ideas you can write to us here talk at steinershow.org by email and you can tweet us at mark steiner let's start with a tweet so um we got what happened to the wait hey, there's a tweet i'm sorry wrong thing. Just bear with me, folks. I do want to start open with this tweet. So we have two tweets here um, from, uh, from uh, Anaquinze Anna Anna Agbu. And Anaquinze tweeted in, inequitable school funding drives our population loss and reduces our tax base. It must be our local and state budget priority. And retweeted and tweeted again, in Maryland, we're number one funding police, number 23 in schools. People leave because of the latter. My family is safer and prospers, prospers with funded schools. So let's talk about this a moment. So, and I know that the mayor, in broad terms, is not saying anything specific, but it talks about $180 million over five years, which, three, three years. Thank you. So the question is, is that enough? What happens to our schools that, that, that leaves another $80 million a year that, 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 that gets cut? Um, the c- cuts could be devastating. Uh, to our schools, um, we're looking at places like Poly, which could lose $2 million at their, uh, in their budget. Other schools could be gutted by, by, by huge amounts, losing up to 1,000 teachers. School size is going up.
3: The so, School for the Arts is going to lose 75 of its part-time faculty members. It will...
0: And to put that in perspective, the majority of the faculty members of the Baltimore School for the Arts are part-time. That's correct. The, because artists – I used to teach there. And so for nine years, I taught there. I came in one morning a week. The sophomore ensemble was mine in theater. I taught them from 8 to noon every Monday. And I, so p- the person who took my place will lose her job now. And that means there will be no arts teachers in the one of the premier art schools in the entire country.
3: It, that is is a school where you have a <laughs> 90% college acceptance rate and twice the national average in college completion in five years. And they're going to – obliterate the abilities of the school to deliver uh, its primary objectives, is art, professional arts preparation and do away with the entire after-school program Twix. that feeds children into the school and prepares them for excellence in the arts elsewhere. I think, you know, for me, we wouldn't be talking about $130 million structural deficit if we didn't need all $130 million that this defi- that this structural deficit is bringing, us, you know, uh, that we're facing. And so for me, to come back to my point before about like Baltimore City has to be its own destiny maker. Um, I compare this. So I'm working on this complete streets legislation. It's around how we design roads. And largely this is because we don't control the MTA. If we compare this to transportation, we don't control the MTA any more than we control the state's funding for the MTA. We can't tell the buses how to operate. We don't run them. Um, if I want buses to run better, then what I need to do is say, this is a lane where only buses can drive. We have to prioritize the movement of bus riders so, and that's because that's within our power. We have to do with what is within our power as a city. What is within our power as a city is to put up the money and just figure out where it comes from. And I think, you know, Kevin Davis could make an explicit statement that like, you know what, the police department could make do with, say, $70 million less. And I think he would look good to say something like that um, because... You know, what's the optics of a year from now where because we've decimated our school budget, we have kids just not showing up to school, our police department is overrun with what that's going to bring, and they're facing the PR nightmare of being out there arresting children all day long. Mm -hmm. I think Kevin Davis would do really well to make a clear public statement, okay, enough's enough. Baltimore City education needs to be prioritized better than it has been.
0: Yeah, and go ahead. I'm sorry, uh, just to
2: pick up on where Councilman Dorsey left off. uh, You know, we are, or I speak for myself, we are really grateful uh, for the mayor, Mayor Pugh, and our delegation in Annapolis, uh, Chairwoman Maggie McIntosh, for all the work they did to get to the $180 million. And I don't say that glibly. I mean, I really know that they had to make some tough choices. Uh, But the message that we want to put out is that we need to keep pushing. Um, If the number is 130, then getting to 60 doesn't get us there. And so we have work to do at the city level and especially at the city council level to get there. And what I want to say about this, what's been so frustrating is that in the public narrative, this has been about mismanagement. And about a school system, the school budget deficit. Uh, there's all this. And that's talk. not true, by the way. Right, not right. at no, all. It's not, not true, true, right? So <laughs> when our governor says that our school system is a disaster, uh, that's just not true. Uh, the, the Clifton Larson Allen, which is a reputable firm, did a complete audit. They found that the books are in order. It was a glowing review. Uh, this is about inequity. Um, this is about structural racism and what it looks like to take – a school system that predominantly serves black kids and continuously cut, cut, cut from it. Um, This is about, you know, when I used to teach, we didn't have air conditioning, uh, drinkable running water, heat. Um, And so we're already cut to the bone. And to further cut from our schools is unacceptable. And so I think at least I want to speak for the three of us here, we are going to fight and do whatever is within our power to fix the gap and restore all of the funding. Yeah, actually, this is Bill Henry. (laughs) Um, So
1: first of all, you're not going to get any argument out of me, and I feel comfortable there is a consensus on the council that uh, we would like to spend more money out of city funds on the school system. And I mean, uh, the, the mayor. The mayor made that a, a, a campaign promise. She's committed to increasing the amount of money that the city puts into the schools by, I think, two hundred million over four years. That was that was a camp. That was a separate. That was a campaign promise it's from last that, year. That Catherine Pugh said. That Catherine Pugh, yeah, had bef- before right. we even got into, you know, the, the the details of this individual deficit for this budget year. Uh, but I don't want to lose sight of. Um, a very important thing, which is that while we have a responsibility to our kids, the state also has a responsibility to our kids. That's it right. it, is, it is actually the state of Maryland's legal responsibility to make sure that every child in the state has a good education. Um, right now, we pay maybe a quarter of the costs of running our school system out of local funds. And I, what I do is I think of that ratio when I think about the fact that we have a $130 million deficit and there are people who are expecting the city to close half of that or more. And I'm thinking, well, we only generally cover about a quarter of the total budget, so I'm not sure if we should be putting the emphasis on the city closing more than that of the deficit especially in light of the fact that it was a state legislative audit that came up with the figure that the state has underfunded us by 290 million dollars over the last three years i mean that's that's the state saying that that's not even us it's not even like a local educational advocacy group that's the state came up with that number at the end of the day the election in 2014 had some really awful consequences for baltimore Um, uh, to to momentarily diverge from um, public school funding, but to show the problem. um, We, in the last term, we raised the gas tax, um, and Baltimore City delegates voted to raise the gas tax because we were told that it would replenish the transportation trust fund and Baltimore would start to get the money it had gotten in the past for repairing our streets and alleys. So we voted for the tax, and at the last minute, they decided to switch the money to go to the red line instead of to the highway user funds. Okay, well, the red line's still good for Baltimore, so it was a positive. But then Hogan gets elected. Hogan comes in. He eliminates the red line, takes all the money from it, spreads it among roads projects for the rest of the state, going to districts where the people voted against the cash tax that's paying for it. We're paying money that the state is spending in other places besides here. At the end of the day, it is the responsibility of the state to figure out how to properly fund So let schools. me push
0: this a bit further, though. Folks, do join us, 410-319-8888. Parents, citizens, teachers, we want to hear your thoughts. Uh, 410-319-8888. Right to us here, talkistannishow.org. I'll check the email. 410-319-8888. But let's say that, look, I mean— a couple of things that what you said made me hit a couple of things. Our roads do. We can get to roads. It's a whole other different <laughs> question because our, 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 the state of our streets suck, especially right after a good solid snow. I mean, they're and high really storm. bad. They're really bad. They're really bad. Um, but one of the things we talk about in this program, we look at education statewide. Is that the largest school system in this in the in the state is Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. That they say they have an influx of 3,000 new children a year, Many of those kids, ESL kids, who they also need money, even though they put a ton of money as a richest county into their school system, richest jurisdiction. So I'm curious why efforts are not being made for Baltimore City to align themselves with Montgomery County and Prince George's County and other people in other jurisdictions who are like-minded in many ways to fight for equitable funding for all of our schools. And make it, you know what I'm saying I mean Baltimore can't do this alone so if you're gonna, if it's a, let me just uh, go to the state I have a very specific things about the city I want to ask you what we should be doing but why isn't that alignment being made so that so that so that you know, there, there's a to me there's a natural synergy between the progressive kind of delegates and senators that come out of, of, of Montgomery County and yeah. Prince George's County Baltimore City and some of those in Howard and other places where an alliance sh- should be made to fight Together.
1: That presupposes that we have progressive senators and delegates coming out of Baltimore City. We have some, but they're not all progressive. And I suspect that that's going to be a very, very loud conversation in the coming year. As uh, Councilman Cohen said earlier, Baltimore is now woke in a way that it has not been previously. And I think that you're going to see. This is just my prediction right now. I think you're going to see a similar level of turnover for our state delegation in the coming. Um, in the coming election as you saw for city council because people are no longer willing to just have the same old, same old. We've been doing the same thing for year after year, term after term, and getting the same results.
0: You guys want to jump in on that?
2: So I do think there are are conversations happening and where they need to uh, head is toward the Kerwin Commission. Uh, which is this commission set up by Brent Kerwin, which is going to review the fair student funding formula. It was originally Thornton. Now it's Kerwin. And it is critically important that Baltimore lifts up its voice, uh, like Dorsey said, and advocates. Because here's the reality, Mark, is that while there are similarities um, between Montgomery and Baltimore and Howard and all these places, what we have that's somewhat unique is a level of concentrated poverty that you just simply don't see in Montgomery county um, and, and and it's it creates trauma, it creates all these other things that make teaching and learning in Baltimore more of a challenge than it is in a place like silver Spring. Um, that's just the reality and so Baltimore needs more funds it needs more resources but that doesn't mean that it's a zero-sum game and we should all be pushing for more educational dollars for all of our kids in maryland
0: we, Ryan we open the phones here no that's okay so the folks do join us at 410 319 i think you want to well you want to go to early break let's go to early break and we'll come right back hank Shirley, louise you're the callers up and when we come back i'm also going to address questions here um about what it means to cut the police budget, what an alternative public safety policy might mean that can put more money into our schools and make a leaner, more effective police department. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Uh, and it's good to have you with us. On a way back to this conversation, I will remind you the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by the Maryland State Education Association. From limiting over testing to protecting public school funding, you can learn more about the issues affecting Maryland students, parents, and schools by visiting the Maryland State Education Association's website at MarylandEducators.org. That's MarylandEducators.org. And we are here with three of our city council people. Councilman Ryan Dorsey from District 3, Councilman Z. Cohen from District 1, and Councilman Bill Henry from District 4. And you all are 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talk at org by email. Let's go right to the phones. And Hank, you're on the air. Welcome.
4: Okay, how are you going today, Mr. Steiner? Very well, Hank.
0: Could hear your voice.
4: Distinguished politician, my, 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 I'm going to ask this question, right? Why is it that in royal county, counties, right, or, or rural communities, it is always uh, great idea to hold your children where most, and I, I will say this, I'm biased to give it a blog, but with the um, paintbrush, right, where you have that separatism hatred taught because you really aren't allowed to, you really you see just who's your, who's around in that little small community of maybe 20,000 or 2,000 people, right, so you get whatever image is already branded from your parents for that teacher, right? With a Baltimore City, where you can't have four or five parents who have the correct education to teach all of their children together, it is a problem. Why? Wow, I don't understand that. Teacher, can you explain that to me. And can we do something about that to change that uh, law?
0: What is the question? Thoughts? So, yeah. Uh,
4: hang,
1: hang I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Bill Henry. Yeah. I'm sorry. Okay. You, you, let
4: me. Let me. Let me yeah. let me, let me put, put clarify it's more easier for someone in a royal county to teach their children but there's laws and in, in particular the kind of urban arrogance where they're making it extremely hard to self-teach your children
0: you mean, are, right? about, are you talking about homeschooling
4: so if, you can, if you put more than two more than two or three parts together now you have an
0: issue where you can be sued for self-teaching well, your child you're talking about homeschooling homeschooling homeschooling, homeschooling. Are there laws like that in Baltimore that'll restrict homeschooling? Not uh,
1: yeah, oh, that I know of. Yeah, I I uh, I Hank, I gotta tell you, if you wanna um if you wanna reach out off, offline, would you, where what what part of town do you live in?
4: I live in East Baltimore. I live in Charles Village.
1: Charles Village, yeah, okay. <laughs> um yeah, I, I would say uh, you know what, give my office a call, uh four ten three nine six four eight three zero or or email me at bill.henry at baltimorecity.gov. And we'll see if we can hook you up with somebody. I know that there's an association for homeschooling. Um, I, I ironically I know it because uh, I was a judge at a spelling bee uh, last week, and there's a lot of homeschooled kids in the spelling bee. And we were we were talking about this. Um, I, I, I'd be happy to try to help you yeah, figure this and out. And I, understand,
4: okay. I understand that, Mr. Henry, but she gets one turn teaching what's one child. That's why I'm trying to teach it, maybe one or two children, which are their own children, right? Which means that someone can't go to work because they have to be home to teach
1: their children. You're, oh, I get you. You're you're talking about getting like a couple parents together, and you all take turns where one parent teaches well, well, all the kids. But that
0: actually does occur.
1: Yeah, that. Yeah, I I think that there's a way to work that out.
0: I mean, because there are there are, there's a school. There are at least two schools I know of in this city, one predominantly white, one predominantly black, because that's how our city rolls, which is unfortunate. The, where, where this is taking place where parents run schools for them of, of their own and people put in a modicum amount of money so they can pay two or three teachers to run the place. There's basically some small enlarged home schools, and I, and I think that's, and I know some people, good friends, who send their kids there and I, my, my, one of my producers, Imani Spence, was also homeschooled for a good part of her time. Uh, so, I mean, it does exist. I mean, they're, they're, that, they're, that, they're, that is, does happen here. So, uh, on the way to the phones here, um, and there's the next caller up, uh, Shirley, Louise, and James are going to c- get to all your calls, but let me throw this thing out. I said to you all, and then we'll go right to the next caller. Is is Shirley? So, you do not control the budget in the city council. You're given a budget that you can take away from. You cannot add to. So that, that I mean that's 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 a. Clear.
3: And can't really move things around either. And cannot move things around. We can cut a line and it reduces our property taxes and that's basically it.
0: So what I'm saying to you here is theoretical in the sense that you don't have the control to do this. But (laughs) I'll throw it out. Which is, to me, it's difficult to talk about public safety and education and not see the interconnection between the two. Yeah. Money-wise. Right? So we spend more per capita on police than almost any other jurisdiction in the country. Yep. And granted, we have some very serious problems. Carjackings are up. Murders and shootings are off the charts in this city. Some communities are feel like they live in battle zones. They don't, you know, the young man who was just killed the other day who was a rising young star in the Upton Boxing uh, program was just shot on Pennsylvania Avenue. So, I mean, the, the, it, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. The question is how do you put your hands around that problem? And is it putting more money into police? Or let me posit something. Or is it something for us to debate where you take maybe – Money out of the police budget, significant money, put it into restorative justice, put it into Safe Streets and Out for Justice and other programs that could take over in the first line of defense in our communities and really help uh, um, uh, bring people in and and stop the violence, Uh, create a restorative justice thing so people, instead of going to jail, can kind of heal community and grow community, have a leaner, stronger police department that really is focused in on its work and have a community school system where you have schools that are open seven days a week for communities to use as rec centers and places to go, and you start building a different kind of community by spending our money more wisely and differently in things in ways that we aren't thinking about, that mayors don't think about, that maybe other people like you all have to think about, even though you don't control the budget. So, This is Ryan Dorsey.
3: I think people move to Baltimore for maybe a variety of reasons, mostly – economic opportunity, but that's really only people in the middle and upper economic spectrum. People don't move to Baltimore for economic opportunity at the lower end of the Not spectrum. Not anymore. That's
0: how Baltimore was built.
3: Yeah. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> but those same people that move out of the city are in the same kind of economic spectrum as the people who move in. They move out because they have the economic means to go somewhere else. And when I asked... People about kind of that, um, it's not the crime that's driving people out. It's that they can't put their kids reliably into a city school and believe in the outcomes that are going to happen. Um, so, investing in our schools like that to me is a pretty clear indicator that investing in our schools is investing in our city, keeping people here and um, growing you know maintaining our tax base and these kind of things so and and which then allows us to invest in a whole lot of other things that make our city more livable more equitable
1: actually if i could just jump in uh, at the higher levels of um of wealth in baltimore city when um, when people leave it's not even because of the schools because they they're, they their kids weren't in the schools to begin with they mm-hmm. you know if they were if they were putting their kids in private school to begin with when they leave they leave because of the low level quality of life crime and 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 this is the the part that is a little bit you know harder to believe would I've been trying to get my arms around this now for 9 or 10 years is how do you reduce the quality of life crime um and it one of the things that we are starting to do we've got this uh, law enforcement assisted diversion program in which the police are going to be instead of arresting people they're going to be trying to hook them up with treatment and case management um the the drug addiction has been uh, just has had just i don't there's not a big enough word for horrifying for the consequences for Baltimore City because of drug addiction And we have spent, at this point now, literally billions of dollars over the last 10 or 20 years using the police department to try to stop the drug economy. And it does not work. It just does not work. We are wasting that money. I have had three police commissioners in a row agree with me that youth development is public safety. Youth yeah. development is should not be thought of as something in competition with the police for funding. It should be thought of as another part of making Baltimore safer. But, but, but we've been putting all of our money into just the policing side and practically nothing into the youth development side yeah. except for what we
0: do provide for the school system. I mean, one of the things, Zeke, that, then we go back to the phones here, is, is that... Mm. I like we've interviewed the officer in charge and the folks involved in that program that you talked about. And I think it's a great program, but it's being done in the theater district and around Lexington Market. It's a pilot. So so, so as a pilot, the Mm -hmm. question is, does that program go to Sandtown? Does that program go to Ashland Avenue? Does that program go to other parts of the city that really need it as well and not just to protect? Even though they're doing that because he has this 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 major wants to do it. He has control of his officers. That's the reason he said they're doing it that way. But the other issue is that other communities need this desperately that are not being gentrified, that really need to survive in their communities. Yeah. And I think the challenge is a
2: political challenge, right? So Baltimore, as a city that has a lot of concentrated poverty, also has a lot of crime. Uh, We can all at this table acknowledge that. But what happens, at least what I've seen in my very short tenure on the city council, is that we have a spike in crime. In my district, it's usually property crime. And then all of a sudden there is this clamor for more police, right? People's immediate reaction is a crime happened and I don't see an officer outside of my window. And so those two things are correlated, Right. right? And so the move politically I think has been, oh, well, we just need more police. We need them present. We need them out. We need whatever community policing means. That's what we need. Um, And so we've seen this police budget just skyrocket. Uh, Under a previous administration, it was zero-tolerance policing. We all know what that yielded. That yielded a broken relationship between our officers and the communities that they serve. And I don't think – and this is not a knock on any individual because it's about systems and structures and politics. I don't think anyone has truly had the courage in a position of power to say enough is enough. We're not going to keep feeding police. We're not going to keep building that budget. We actually need to move in the other direction, just like Councilman Henry said, and to his credit, he's been saying it for a very long time, and I've heard him say it, that money spent on youth development is better public safety money than money spent on police. And I think it's going to be interesting in this moment where you have both a crisis and in our school system, and also a crisis in our police department, whether we collectively have the political will to move the needle in the other direction.
3: And it should so, be obvious when it's just there's no discernible correlation between a reduction in crime and an increase in spending. You cannot argue that that has happened. 410 319 Let's go to Shirley. You've been waiting a
0: while. You're on the air. Welcome. Yes, my
4: name is Shirley. I was going to ask this question. Has anyone ever thought about electing the school board? Yeah. I've always thought that
1: um, it was needed. I, I, yeah, I, okay. So actually I think we, the, the, there was a a law passed at the state level, and I think we actually are supposed to start electing two members, two yes. members of the board. What I don't remember is whether that starts in um 18 or whether that starts in 22 but um, there are other uh, there are other subdivisions that have partially elected school boards um so yeah. here here and 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 if you leave Maryland if you leave Maryland That's there's right. there's that lots right there. of there's lots of towns there's yeah. lots of school districts across the country here's the one. but here's so, yeah. but here's the important distinction in most of those places they also it's the school board that sets the property tax that pays for the district so you're electing the people who are then raising the money from you and so you're so there's a there's a there's a tie in the responsibility and the power here in maryland or in baltimore specifically the school board does not raise any money they just spend it technically we the city council are the people who are raising the money from you, or the General Assembly members are raising the money from you in terms of taxes, and you already elect us. So,
0: Shirley, are you trying to make a quick thought there? We have a lot of callers, so go ahead.
4: Oh, no, go ahead. I'm going to call back because I think that we should attempt to elect the board itself.
0: And okay, thank you very thank much. You so, thank you so much. Whole, and, and
1: whole, whole separate conversation. Happy to come
0: back for that one. Yeah, we need to have <laughs> that. We've had the conversation before, and I, and I think the studies have also shown around the country that elected school boards are not necessarily more effective than appointed ones. It doesn't mean they should not be elected, just that you know. That, but I think because they can be more accountable. Funding
3: school systems actually that, is that, quite that, effective. That, that's, yeah. So Khalil, <laughs> Khalil Harris tweeted
0: in, uh, um, in this entire fever pitch effort for money, I hear no strategy to support impeccable work. Educators and families do with very little. And then also tweeted in last point we left Democrats running the city off the hook too readily and easily. They are culpable, they are as culpable as the governor. Um, and uh, Theodore Bracey uh, tweeted in, uh, How about the terrible streets? Hanover Street Bridge for beginners. The overtime for the police has to be addressed. From Theodore Bracey tweeting in, okay, Our streets do, that really in horrible shape. I mean, it's like a rodeo out there trying to dodge between the potholes and Cracks in our streets.
1: We have over half a billion dollars of deferred maintenance on the city streets so based on the money we have not gotten from the state and highway user funds over the last 10 years.
3: We have like 40% of the necessary budget actually budgeted to do our road repair. 40%. That's my understanding.
0: 410 319 8888. Louise, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Good morning.
4: I was to ask, it's my understanding that Baltimore students' constitutional rights are being violated. Has there been any thought to suing the state again for the adequate funding to fill the gap for not only the $130 million, but the full $290 million that the state owes, especially since the last time the schools were fully funded was in 2008?
0: So that, okay. that that's, that's a great, a great question. So, okay, go ahead. I do want to get see the council members in here as well. I'm, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, so. <laughs> he's, the, uh, he's the elder statesman yes, in the group. Yes, he gets. Yes, uh, I, he I he like to
1: defer <laughs> <privilege>. to <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> When Mary passed here, we all defer to her. So <laughs> it kind of works that way. Um, well, I'm the oldest, but defer to me. Go, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. So I, but I, but this, is, this is one that I have been talking about a lot lately is – um, many people may have forgotten that the state-city partnership that we have right now um, that is the organizational structure for the schools and how they relate to, um, to us, they, that was set up back in 1997 largely because there was a push to sue the state in federal court back in the mid-'90s because they weren't properly – Funding the right. city schools. And um, and so uh, it was what a lot of people thought of at the time as a sort of an out of court settlement, but it may just have exceeded its usefulness. And, you know, the state is not doing what it should be doing. Maybe we should be reconsidering. And I that. doubt the
0: city will do it, but it would take groups like the ACLU and others to make yeah. that lawsuit because I don't mm-hmm. think that Mayor Pugh will sue. Um, Governor Hogan and his administration. No,
1: but I know there are lots of people who would.
0: Yes, there are. Yeah. A lot of people who would. Yeah. So it's not a bad idea. Yep. So um, before we go back to the phones here, and the next caller up is Leroy, we're going to come to your call next. I, I want to take a real diversion here before we lose time. Um, uh, that, and I want to ask this question very quickly. ICE. Yeah. Your district, I mean, people have been snatched. Yep. A lot of people are being snatched by ICE. Yeah. So what do we do as a city? Do U.S. city want to protect people? Yeah. Yes. So yes. the most recent uh,
2: case that I know of was a father who dropped his son off at Hampstead Hill Academy. This is a new one. I haven't heard about this one. Yeah, this was just last week. Uh, dropped off his son, drove away, and was immediately arrested and detained by ICE and is being held in a detention center in Frederick.
0: That's where they all are going right now from here.
2: That's right. Um... It, it is unacceptable. Uh, it has undermined public safety because this is a community that already has issues with trust with law enforcement. And now it's a community, and I'm referring to our immigrant community, that has on some level gone underground um, because of the fear and panic and anxiety that these sweeps have created. Um, I will say that Casa de Maryland has done heroic work. They've been uh, constructing a sanctuary network um, to try and protect our community members. Um, In Annapolis right now, we are debating, and I went up to testify, on the Maryland Trust Act, which would uh, essentially curtail collaboration between local and state law enforcement and ICE, Um, And there's just been a really strong grassroots push largely from our immigrant community with groups like Oye and others – this is a youth leadership group – saying we need to protect all of our community members here in Baltimore. We can't allow ICE to come in and bully and intimidate and harass people and so – Since my district happens to be the place traditionally of immigration in Baltimore, um, I've sort of seen this as my calling on the city council is to lift up that voice. I'm going to be introducing legislation on Monday, a resolution telling ICE that we only want them to enforce actual crimes and not just status crimes. Because we do have public safety challenges in our city, but they're not being caused by the people who are here working hard, volunteering, sending their kids to our schools, and quite literally in some cases rebuilding the city of Baltimore. And so we need to be very clear uh, that we are a welcoming city and that ICE has no business coming into southeast Baltimore or anywhere else and messing with our community
0: members. And we're going to be doing more shows on this in the coming weeks. I just wanted to get, invite you back as well and others to come on and deal with this because it's a huge, huge issue. Yes. And I think we have to do some things to protect our citizens, our, our fellow citizens, immigrants in the city. Yes. 410-319-8888. Uh, Leroy, you're on the air. Welcome.
4: Hello. How are you? Very well. Well, my problem is Baltimore City is, has the number one highest housing taxes in this state. But yet, none of that money is being allocated for our school systems. Not true. We have, we have, well, no, no, I'm saying it's supposed to be. But yet, we have a gap in funding for our school systems. We have three major casinos in our state that funding supposed to go towards education specifically. Right. Is it going there? No. But yet, we continue to pump money in policing instead of saying, you know what? Educate a child, and a child makes better decisions. It just... I don't understand the thought process of our politicians on what they
0: want from the youth. Okay, let's let's We've only have a little bit, 10 minutes left here. So.
1: Okay, so, so, so first of all, um, we are putting about $300 million a year of city money into the schools, and that's coming from our property taxes. So it's not that we're not putting anything. We're not putting all the money that we need for our schools to be properly funded into it because – Literally, if we put every dollar, if we put every dollar from the highest property taxes in the state into our city school system, that would not fully fund the school system on its own. We, let me let me say that one more time: the Baltimore City school system budget annually is more than Baltimore City collects in property taxes. Yeah. We need the state to help. Baltimore City has thirty percent. Of its tax base exempt because we have the largest concentration of uh, u- universities, colleges, hospitals, hospitals churches, churches, churches n- um, synagogues, all all, all all the all all, all these great charitable pl- places, museums, yeah. uh, no symphony taxes. halls,
0: but they pay no taxes. They pay no taxes.
3: They pay. No taxes. They pay the equivalent of five percent of what there would be you know, tax rate would be,
0: which is so that that's something we've debated on the show yeah. many times in the, in the past. I've not done it recently, but I'm glad you raised that issue. Yeah. And also, just very quickly, when we go back to the phones that that are that the casinos it was never in the law. That's right. What the casino money does is pay for the pay for schools. And many other things, it doesn't add to the school budget. Right. That was the trick bag they put us in when they put those advertisements up, making us think that was going to happen when it wasn't happening so it does, ever. It all PR, goes to the schools.
3: The PR, I, I think, cannot be uh, underestimated around things like the casinos yeah. and Port Covington. And I put the two together, yeah. asking you what we we're going to talk about today. You say, you know, what have we learned from Port Covington? That was one, one of the things, things, things I said. Right. Is right. is, you know, well, we've learned a whole lot more and we've raised the dialogue around how – TIFs and and development breaks um, affect our school budget. And I think it's worth noting that like, you know, know, the other thing is like, okay, these are capitalist interests that are behaving exactly as we expect them to to act. So, you know, what are we doing to monitor that and, and stave off that kind of behavior for the future? And it's really, I think, worth noting the PR around these things. One PR firm did all of the PR for the charter school uh, law, law school, lawsuit litigants, Port Covington, and the casinos? The same PR firm, and they are cunning. They, you know, um, it, with the, the charter schools, they they launched this campaign saying, "Look, they're going to tell you it's not. Uh, it's about equity. It's not about equity. It's about transparency." And then what they did. You know, clearly, if you're looking from the outside, what's happening is equity issues are being raised, and then a lawsuit that bars transparency is there. Similarly, with Port Covington, uh, you're looking, uh, you know, at the opposition being framed as people who are moving the goalpost, opportunists. But at the same time, they're starting with a $500 million TIF, and it's becoming a $660 million TIF. They're starting out talking about Ten thousand people living there, and it becomes eighteen thousand people there. You know, they're they're actually moving the goalpost while they're blaming us of moving the goalpost. We have to be really clear about, you know, what's actually on the table when somebody launches a PR campaign that says, "Yeah, this is going to be the next solution."
0: That's really powerfully and importantly and importantly and important as you said that. I mean, I think that's something that, again, many things you've raised here today, all three of you. Our shows we should just start booking and talking about in terms of our local things specifically on these various issues yeah. all of you has ra- all of you have raised 410-319-8888 josh line three you're on the air hey mark
3: how's it going uh, josh, josh harris and- welcome henry hey cohan and dorsey how are you guys doing hey man it's good man. uh and uh, dorsey i want to thank you for your comments just now of course about the uh the implications of tax breaks and how that plays a role in funding of education system um, but I more specifically want to ask, have there been um, any actions by the council to actually cut the police budget? Um, uh, because we know that you guys can't add to the budget, but we you know that there's been too much money being spent in police. Has there been any action to cut the police budget? And then also want to ask your thoughts on the legislation for is currently in for the uh, city to take control of city schools and how that would be possible with two-thirds of the funding coming from the state. And I guess I'll take my, court, my your answer offline.
0: So... You have, I have five, five minutes left
2: here, so I'm going to
3: let you
0: all as you answer. Go ahead. Sure. Zeke. So
2: real quick, uh, my understanding is the mayor puts out a budget, and then we can uh, vote for it or cut it. Uh, I do think, Josh, that cutting from police is very much on the table right now. Absolutely. Uh, when we look at the indictment of the seven officers... Um, and, and to be clear, this is not a knock on the character of our police officers in Baltimore, but it is to say that we have some deep institutional and structural issues within BPD. And if you don't believe me, look at the consent decree, look at the DOJ report. We have some deep problems. And I think one of the issues is excessive and out-of-control overtime. Uh, I, I think it was $44 million of overtime when they were budgeted 15. And so I would say – Uh, Josh, that police and specifically police overtime, I think, is very much on the table as we engage in this conversation about how to properly fund our schools.
3: I would love to see an effort here also to try to recoup some of the losses that we've faced from that we're facing from. Uh, unjustified overtime and illegal claiming of overtime. I mean, you just can't have officers, you know, any other job, it's like, we're going to pay you $80,000, but really we're going to pay you $210,000. Like, that's ludicrous by, like, within any other profession, any other setting. Um, They're basically setting their own earnings. And this is going to affect our pensions for a long... That cannot be underestimated either, is that this is going to affect... How much they're paid in their pensions?
2: Yeah, they oh, said right. they said on the wiretap, and that's going to
3: affect us for for decades to right. come. Right.
2: Said on the wiretap, you, you make it up in overtime. You, I mean that the whole when people sign up for the BPD, they're signing up for double
3: pay. And because we should we not just dole it. We out. should not be learning about this stuff through federal probes. We should have the capacity to do this through our own office of the Inspector General. It should be more autonomous. It should be better resourced to be able to suss these things out from within.
0: Well, I'm going to say to the three of you, don't be strangers. We like having you on the air here with us. Two of our... um, young warriors here who joined the city council and they're doing, I think, uh, they're out there raising the issues for the people. Ryan Dorsey from District 3 I mean, from District Three, and Zeke Cohn from District 1. And a man that the establishment tried to overthrow but could not, Bill Henry, uh, in District 4. <laughs> they did, they came after you and they didn't win. <laughs> so uh, it's good to have the three of you in the studio. I've got a town
3: there. hall here at Morgan tonight. Over in the School of Business at 7 p.m. tonight, I have Liz Cornish, the executive director of Bikemore, Lawrence Grand Prix, the research director for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, and Frank Patnella from ACLU Maryland oh Education. They're all going to be guests. Tonight at 7. Tonight o'clock at 7 here at Morgan State in the business school. Which is right
0: there by Northwood Shopping Center. Yes, sir. Any right. Quick announcements you guys want to make before we get out of here in, in, in 30 seconds?
3: Uh, just
2: that on March 23rd at John Rura Elementary School, we'll be holding an education and youth committee hearing specifically about supporting our immigrant youth in this time of crisis. Great. We know there are some deep mental health challenges uh, caused by trauma. Um, we know that our young people don't get enough ESOL, uh, and so we are going to hold a hearing to support that. Everyone should come out and join.
0: Any quick thoughts? Bill Henry says he's, Yeah, I'll be he's, back. Yeah, Yes, you will. <laughs> yes, you will. So I'm going to thank the three of you so much. Bill Henry, District 4. Councilman Zeke Cohen, District 1. Councilman Ryan Dorsey, District 3. We look forward to having you on here many times over the coming months so we can uh, wrestle with what's facing our city in a very creative way. Thank you three so much for your service. Good to have you all here.
3: Thank you, Mr. Steiner. Thank you. Nice,
0: Mark. We're taking a short break. When we come back, it's Thursday. Time for Sound Bites. We're going to look at what Trump is doing to the environment and energy, and then we're going to talk about fried chicken. Stay with us you <laughs>